Lo distinto te ha encontrado. Esto es Infinita Podcast. Encuentra nuevos episodios cada semana. Suscríbete. Bienvenidos al DT Podcast número 54. En este episodio muy especial tenemos eh, a un amigo que está del otro lado del mundo, literalmente, desde Hawái, está Stan Stolnocker con nosotros, eh, de parte de nosotros está Rafa, y pues eh, este episodio es, 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 va a ser súper interesante, tenemos muchos temas que hablar, vamos a hablar un poquito de la historia de Stan, de cómo llegó a hacer lo que está haciendo, cómo empezó en todo esto, y, y después pues nos va a contar de, de su nuevo proyecto, que es un, un proyecto interesantísimo, de una ciudad virtual, literalmente respaldada por eh, un bosque en las Amazonas en Brasil. Entonces, eh, le damos la bienvenida a Stan. Stan, welcome. Thank you for taking the time for being here and for wanting to share with us. And, and there's a here is here in, in Guatemala and Central America. Um, so, yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, how, how did you start doing what you're doing right now? How, how did Hub Culture start? How did you get there? Well, I mean, Hub Culture is one of the oldest social networks and was established back in 2002 uh, to really connect a global network of influencers and leaders together. And over the ensuing years, it has adapted and changed and grown uh, to really become uh, one of the first, what we think of as virtual nations, like a, a space and a a community that exists in between um, the kind of virtual world and the, and the physical world. And during that time, we've been able to be very early in co-working and um, very early in um, uh, digital currency, digital identity, and now looking a lot at what we call liquid governance and the ability to deploy rules across the community or, or concepts across the community that, that have interactive and liquid voting. So, you know, a lot of really amazing and different components. And those have existed for a long time inside of hubculture.com and some of our other social platforms. But um, they're now being reutilized and reimagined into the virtual reality through a new virtual city that we're building called Emerald City. And that's where we are now in the kind of one, one dimension of, of that virtual metropolis. Nice, nice. I mean, it sounds amazing. Uh, how, like, always when I heard your story first, uh, when we first met in Bermuda, I, I thought it was very interesting because as you mentioned 2002, uh, innovating in, in, in what is social interactions and, and, you know, basically what you do with your friends and how do you grow and empower other people around you. So I, I, I always thought it was very inspiring. Um, tell us a little bit more about, you know, um, What motivated you to start this first? Well, I mean, to be honest with you, the the motivation came from my friends, from people I knew. Um, this is a long time ago now, but we were all a group of people who lived a very global, international life. And in a way, before it became a kind of common thing, I, I think with millennials and even Instagram culture, the idea of moving globally and and living that kind of international hub uh, view where you're moving from, you know, Mexico City to Athens and Athens to Tokyo and Tokyo to London and London to Miami. You know, that idea of being able to move from environment to environment, but having a common uh, fabric of friends and, um, and even work um, was very new at that time but now it's actually part of the fabric for a lot of different people and the ability to kind of think globally and move locally is something that a lot of people really enjoy so you know i think in a way we were a little bit ahead of our time but the community itself um, was the impetus the people that i knew trying to connect those people i think of this girl that i knew she was half japanese uh half german she lived in washington dc And she used to say to me that she had no culture. And I always thought that was incredible because to me, she had the most interesting culture. She had grown up in Italy, like traveled all through Europe, traveled in Asia and, and had this like really mixed ethnic background. And I thought to myself, like, 
that should be a culture that's celebrated. This is like the new, the new kind of ideal in a lot of ways that you could be this internationally minded person and and find that there are other people in the world who have a similar perspective, but they may come from different ethnic ba- backgrounds. They may come from different countries, but they have a similar outlook on the world that's modern and progressive and urban. And like, and just to put that into context and in that interest, where like, where did you grow up? Uh, you're from England, right? Uh, but you also studied in the states. Uh, well, I grew up in the United States, and right. then I lived in Hong Kong. Uh, I studied in Europe, in Brussels, and in, in Washington D.C. And then I lived for a number of years in Hong Kong, and then I moved to London, and then. You know, over the last several years, my my world has grown to include Bermuda, where I spent a lot of time. For the moment, I was living three months in Hawaii, where we're doing some work on building our innovation campus for this summer. Um, and we've done hubs like physical locations in over 60 cities around the world, from Ho Chi Minh City to Beijing to Rio to Venice, um, and many places in between. So. You know, we are fortunate, both myself and our our operational teams, to spend a lot of time in the world in different places. So, you know, it is it is an exciting world that we live in, and even up until very recently, we've been um, we've been able to to really enjoy um, you know the kind of fruits of that global life. Um, now, in the age of you know coronavirus and all these changes that are happening, and also a view towards sustainability, I think we're going to see more of a move towards people moving into virtual environments where they can travel instantly into really exciting new environments that would have been only dreamed of as, re- as recently as a few months ago. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think that and that's, that's so interesting with the whole change that's happening. And, and I think also that's why it's so, especially so interesting to see someone with that long trajectory um, And, and, and now coming with this amazing project of Emerald City, which we uh, will go get later into. But um, tell us, you know, we, in this show, we do talk about blockchain and, and, and cryptocurrencies. And mm-hmm. when I first met you, it was at the Security Token Summit in Bermuda. So um, tell us a little bit about your story into the whole uh, digital currency world, coming from this different events and then... Uh, uniting it with a with a digital currency back in before even bitcoin was named yeah well we launched ven which is our digital currency back in 2007 and it was designed originally to help the community to be able to share value with each other and to find opportunities because we kept doing you know a week in you know vietnam or a week in rio and we didn't have any way to run payments across the community or to manage ticketing or things like that for some of the activities we're doing. And we decided that it would be really helpful to have our own currency within the community that could be used to drive value creation um, between the members. And so in 2007, we launched Van. It was the first digital currency really in the world to be exchanged peer to peer. And it was, uh, you know, pretty groundbreaking in terms of the way that we could quickly move value between members um, in, the, in the community. And then, of course, a couple years later, Bitcoin came along and we saw the idea of decentralized currencies move into the world. And Venn was not decentralized on a blockchain because at the time blockchains did not exist. And um, we wanted to have very fast, rapid, low friction exchange between the, um, between the audience. And so, You know, fundamentally for us, the experience has been really amazing. Like we've driven a lot of value to our customers and our members through the currency and we've evolved with the blockchain world. So we were early in developing syndicates so people could move then from uh, their wallets and be able to dive into things like Bitcoin or Ethereum um, through our kind of syndicates. And then in time, we developed Ultra, which is a tokenization platform and an exchange that allows for more rapid uh, transactions and the ability for people to hold wallets related to digital assets like Bitcoin or Ethereum or, or Ripple. And I think what one of the interesting things has been this interplay between kind of more traditional digital assets like Venn and the really wild world of crypto. We 
often think of ourselves as the Switzerland of crypto because Venn is so stable and so boring. Um, you know, it's it's been very, very, very stable. In fact, the world's most stable asset over the last 15 years. And or not, actually not 15, it's been 13 years, I suppose, of, of Venn operations. Um, but, you know, it's been a long run and the currency continues to grow stronger and we're finding more utility and more use case for the currency, even though it sits under relatively strict regulatory uh, guidelines that prevent us from doing some things that we'd like to do. You know, there was a time when Venn existed on outward financial markets, even on the, the, the first foreign exchange markets outside of the crypto world. Um, but regulatory concerns forced us to kind of hem in some of those outward uses of the currency and limit it to essentially the network itself. And as we work with regulators, we're, we're seeking to expand some of the utility and the, the, the use functions of Venn. Um, but because it's not decentralized the way that Bitcoin is, we do have to really make sure that we're playing by the rules and dotting our I's and crossing our T's to not fall afoul of any regulatory concerns in the markets where our customers or members live. And when was the moment like that you, 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 you know, uh, first learned about Bitcoin and, and, and then you were like, wow, this is kind of like the, what I'm doing. Well, I mean, for us, we first heard about Bitcoin very early. I mean, I think 2010 was the first time I heard about Bitcoin and it was from a friend of mine who was mining Bitcoin in Boulder. And so I tried to ask him how to get some. And, you know, I think I bought that first Bitcoin. My first, first Bitcoin, I think, was when Bitcoin was around 50 cents. But it was so difficult to hold it and I didn't really have the skill to be able to manage the, the codes. Um, you know, in terms of the hashes that you had before you had Bitcoin wallets. And then I got some more Bitcoin that I actually purchased um, when it was around $7. And again, it was before wallets existed. So I was just holding those hash strings on my computer. And then, of course, that computer died. And so I ended up losing those Bitcoin. It wasn't a huge amount, but it was a good, you know, seven or eight Bitcoin. And... <laughs> You know, I still keep that computer in the hopes that someday I can retrieve the hash strings off the hard drive, um, but I've never been able to actually find it, having looked several times. <laughs> um, you know, it's a typical Bitcoin origin story, right? Like, oh, I had some Bitcoin when it was worth very little, and then for whatever reason, I lost it. It ended up um, in the ether. So someday, you know, I'm always hoping that someday that idea of being able to mine or to track back um, early transactions on the network and find your lost Bitcoin and reclaim it will somehow come true. Um, and then around 2014, we started mining and we, we, we were making pretty serious investments into mining equipment and hardware. And of course, we were a little late on that because by the time we started mining, it was already like really, you know, an industrial business and you couldn't be a large scale miner in 2014. And actually make any money we would have been much better putting that money into just buying bitcoin and holding it and of course you know you can sometimes you can be so far ahead you're behind right so we were ahead in, in the idea that we could mine but we were behind in the scale of which we could mine competitively and so we sort of pivoted out of that and that same year we started moving into altcoins and investing into altcoins like ripple and and um and other coins, although at that point it was really just Bitcoin and Ripple and us. Um, and then of course Ethereum came about and you know we bought our Ethereum at $1, which was great. But of course we sold our Ethereum at $10 because if you look at traditional supply and demand, um, there was no way that Ethereum should have been worth more than 50 cents. <laughs> but you know, it, <laughs> the market obviously has other ideas about things. Um, you know, I'm a traditionally trained economist, so I tend to apply traditional economic fundamentals to some of our outlook on these assets and, and the systems that surround them. But I think what's been interesting is that they have, um, the industry has defied some of the traditional economic assumptions that existed before the world of cryptocurrencies. And that's really interesting because it does give rise to some new theories and some new thinking around um, the, the, the market and, and the industry.
Rafa, ¿tienes una pregunta? Um, yeah, look. So Stan, um, I, uh, from your story, it sounds like you, you've been very, like, super ahead in the, the, the idea of like these, these new ways. So, so every time we talk to people about, you know, smart contracts, sorry, my, my one-year-old is crying. <laughs> um, when, so when we talk about uh, smart contracts, we always like tell people like, you know, this is gonna challenge the way we think about about how societies should organize. So the, you know, we're gonna have a new way of organizing societies that's enabled by smart contracts and the internet. And you know, what you've done with what you're doing with Emerald City and what you, you've been doing like with, with pop culture for a long time, like how do you see the future? Um, how do you, how do you see um, what what ways will do you, do you, do you think? People will start to organize. Well, and now that's that's being like you know, there's more momentum due due to the COVID crisis. But but how do you see that going going forward? Well, I mean, there are a lot of changes that are being driven forward right now. You know, we're seeing more change in ten weeks than we've seen in ten years. And so, you know, you can pick the category, right? So, um, you could look at fiscal policy. You could look at privacy. You could look at healthcare. You could look at virtualization, right? These are four major areas that I think are driving the conversation right now. So when you look at fiscal policy, you have an unprecedented economic like shock that's happened. And the result of that is that governments have to print money uh, to be able to you know, avoid like all out disaster, right? And, and it's not just one country, we're talking like every country has to do this. Now, from an economic standpoint, there are some ways that you could think about the stimulus that's being printed into the market. But essentially, question really depends on whether or not the stimulus that's being printed into the market is bigger. You could argue that you would end up with a relatively short-term um, situation. And you know, it's sort of like you, you're driving down the road and you hit this giant pothole, right? And um, when you hit the pothole, if the pothole's been filled with this kind of stimulus, you, you end up with like less of a bump. If there's no stimulus, you hit this really deep pot, you know, pothole, you kind of break an axle. And, and if there's too much stimulus, you know, maybe it's, it turns into more of like a speed bump and it sends you flying, essentially inflationary. And so these are like the, the kind of three levels that a, a central bank policymaker is trying to get right. Generally, like, you know, with the Great Recession and certainly the Great Depression back in the 30s, they didn't fill the pothole enough and it broke the axle of the economy. Um, getting it right would mean like a relatively small disruption and, a, you know, a very sharp correction, but returning back to normal pretty quickly. And if they get it too much, then, you know, it kind of launches the economy into flight and you end up with decentralization or uh, inflation, kind of like what you've got with um, Venezuela, where you've got too much money printing and not enough um, fundamentals and you, you end up with an inflationary period where the, the money becomes worth less. And so in the midst of all this, you have Bitcoin and you have uh, cryptocurrencies, which are also changing the ways that you can issue the stimulus. So in the US, people are looking at, you know, potentially using CBDC, central bank digital currency, to issue out stimulus. We're talking to a couple of governments right now about issuing out you know, alternative currencies or side currencies or stimulus assets or reward currencies that would help to cushion the blow, but also be somewhat separated from the main financial system so that people can get what they need, which is short-term liquidity or food or whatever, but without it like impacting the overall monetary supply. So there are lots of cool new tools that really did not exist 10 years ago at the time of the financial crisis that do exist because of crypto today. The question is whether or not they'll actually be used by policymakers and if they have the skill or capability to use them and to what extent that can actually be deployed. So I, I think FinTech in the immediate term has the most impact because if you look at like Stripe or PayPal or other groups that um, can provide initial liquidity, uh, that's actually something that's an alternative to bank lending that didn't exist 10 years ago. But right. getting it fully crypto, you know, at scale, it, it's still a bit of an ask. And there's still some some difficulties with making that work, whether it's, you know, privacy or 
anti-money laundering or even just you know ease of use for the end for the end person like for my aunt who doesn't even use like chat let alone like whatsapp um let alone a, a crypto asset like or you know a wallet like metamask right so I, i think there are challenges on the healthcare side we're seeing this incredible opportunity around identity which is really at the base of all of this and also an incredible danger because of surveillance and so suddenly crypto and things like smart contracts or um you know decentralized control of assets um decentralized hosting you know encrypted privacy i mean so many innovations that came from the crypto world are now suddenly really really important for basic fundamentals that we all need to be thinking about especially with regard to data and individual data ownership which we're big believers and one of the only companies that provides individual data ownership for the data archives that a customer builds with us inside of hub culture and then when you look at um um you know the kind of fiscal policy side this opportunity to to use new technologies is you know really incredible but it it remains to be seen how applicable they really really are and you know it's we're three weeks into it like uh, three months from now i think we're going to see really radically different opportunities <laughs> yeah so i mean if we haven't all starved to death which i don't think will happen i i do think that um First of all, I think that the core system is way more resilient than people think. Um, you know, there's this kind of joke going around about libertarians waiting for their stimulus check, right? So, <laughs> you know, I think you got to be careful what you wish for. Yeah, but just like this, like just listening to your story, you're such a pioneer in this idea of, of like global communities and I, and I I've been just like thinking okay try to extrapolate what's going to happen in the future but people who I'm thinking people who who do not agree with the government of the the place that they live in can now sort of decide to join these internet societies these societies that sort of live in the internet or or live in the in the world wide web where it it's not it's not part of like a physical jurisdiction do you think that's going to happen at some point Well, I mean, I think that it's already happened. You know, we have 4 billion people who live online. We have 3 billion people who have some sort of persona or identity inside of Facebook. You have 50,000 people who have an identity within Hub Culture. You have, you know, several billion people who are in various forms of social media, whether it's TikTok or um WhatsApp or Telegram. and all of them offer different functionalities and different value sets. I think with Hub Culture we're small but really deep. Like we offer a lot of capability and uh a lot of things that nobody else offers to our customers and that's being really enhanced with Emerald City. It's Emerald City is the execution of an emerging vision around the idea of territory and you know we've never built a virtual city before. No one has and we're building it with really weird and kind of wonderful linkages into the the real world. So thinking about how do you build a virtual career? How do you make money? How do you help other people? How does that drive a carbon benefit back to the planet? Um these are all things that we've thought about in Emerald City and fortunately we have the technology to be able to make them real, not just, you know, kind of bullshit. And so for us you know we're we're arcing towards this goal of the first virtual country and that virtual country would have outposts in the physical world maybe eventually we'll have outposts off planet like we have investments in space companies that are working on getting us into space in various ways and it'll have outposts in the virtual world and so the first virtual world outpost we're doing is this virtual city and so on one level it exists on the flat web where we are now right now we're in emerald city um it will exist inside of a 3d web that you can navigate and it will exist within virtual reality that you can dive into and have a more immersive experience and it will exist in the real world the physical world through our physical locations and ar augmented reality so the challenge is how do you make all that seamless and you know 
that's that's not an easy answer for anybody but we're trying uh, you know i i assume you you had the thought of emerald city for a long time like it didn't just pop out in the last uh, three weeks so and you were in january in davos uh you you had a a little hub uh there and, and you did some press conferences and talked to a lot of uh, very interesting people i i followed you um how did that like influence emerald city and did this situation right now push you to you know launch it faster uh, and, and and be out there well i have to be really honest with you um we did not have the idea for emerald city before february um what we did have was obviously our 60 or so hubs that we've done around the world where we have various levels of integration between hubculture.com and the physical locations and in 2017 and 2018 we built our first virtual reality properties that mirrored those physical pavilions so we did a version of our bermuda beach club and we did a version of the hub in davos this year we built two buildings in davos and we operated four locations to create the the hub culture davos campus and in the summer we have our innovation campus which began in bermuda then it went to france and then it went to capri last summer and this summer is likely coming to Kauai. and so this physical operation was linked to the digital operation and the plan was to build a virtual property for the world expo in dubai where we did not think we would be able to do a physical build this year but we wanted to participate in world expo and we thought it would be fun to build a virtual reality pavilion and then um after davos i went to the amazon for uh the month of february and was in rio and and really deep in the amazon living with a, a tribe the ashaninka and with that tribe i was studying governance and i was studying sustainability and they have been sustainable for a thousand years living in the forest and they have pretty interesting governance models um, that have allowed them to sustain their society over a very long period of time and importantly they're doing very good work for restoration of lost portions of the amazon areas that have been destroyed and we wanted to see how we could use our funding models with van and with ultra reserve to support reforestation of of these areas and it was really there in the amazon um that i got the idea for emerald city so that was only in mid-february and i came out of that process thinking we should build not just a virtual pavilion but a virtual city emerald city and then have the funding of that virtual city go to support the restoration of areas of land in the amazon regrow the forest and then build a new sustainable city that is fully in harmony with nature and so that was the vision for emerald city kind of coming out the middle of february end of february and so in march we started building <laughs> right and so we've, <laughs> only, we've only been building for four weeks wow, wow. and, and it's already fun. live and it, and wait till you see what's coming it's going to be amazing the virtual reality integrations and you, you touched on governance so so back to the topic of of you know these societies the, the way that you know people are organized societies are organizing that out, are outside of boundaries of countries or you know physical jurisdictions um so you mentioned the example of facebook things like that the, the limitation there like the, one of the big limitations is that people are not free to transact right there's no the, through facebook or any of those platforms people can, can don't, are not able to transact to send value or to send assets in, in any way Well, you can you can send money inside of Facebook Pay. Like the, it's just that people don't really use it. But you you can send value inside of Messenger. You can make payments inside of Facebook Messenger. You know, Telegram was working on a crypto thing called Grams, which yeah. got shut down by the SEC. Um, that would have been amazing because it would have been you know two billion users with peer to peer transactions, much like what we have with Ven. Um, obviously that had a blockchain element and then you have Libra and you know people have forgotten about Libra especially with the crisis but I'm telling you Libra is coming in June and it's going to be huge regardless of what people think it's going to be massive it, it, you know I mean the ability for Libra to upend a lot of what's going on 
um, both for you know crypto and for traditional banking, is completely underestimated in, in my view. Wow, what do you think about governance? So, and, and uh, a group of people that are organizing through the internet that have no physical limitations. So what sort of governance model is the right should work? You know, we, we talk about democracies and you know all those things. What do you think is a, is an interesting is a, like a proper governance model for for societies that are organizing such, such as Emerald City? Well, I mean, I've become obsessed with governance over the last couple of years because um, I always think we've been very lucky that we've been able to be ahead of things. So we were we were obsessed with currency in 2007, and then in 2009 we were obsessed with co-working, and then in 2014 we were obsessed with digital identity. And we built components of all these things that now exist and have given rise to why we could launch Emerald City within a month, right? Um, in 2017 and 18, we got obsessed with tokenization and the ability to build an exchange, which again, we were three years late on that. We should have done it in 2014. Um, but in 2018, it moved to um, AI and we, we launched our AI product, which is very slowly learning in an open ended environment. And we'll see how the AI evolves. It's somewhat out of our control. But in 2019, um, we started thinking a lot about how do we build governance and liquid voting into what we're doing? Um, because the idea of the virtual state was becoming ever more real. And the idea that we needed to have varied or distributed governance for aspects of what we're doing. And that idea of distributed governance, localization, holonics is really important. Um, if, you, if you study governance, the idea of holonics or this idea that you have nesting capabilities that can then scale up much faster, but still have high levels of individual responsibility as you go up and down the, the kind of um, chain. And so we built Propel, which is our governance platform based on this concept of holonics. And um, the, the voting system is, but it's also highly um, ground up. So anyone can component, or if they don't feel qualified to vote on that component, they can assign the vote to somebody else. And this is done transparently so that there's a, a chain of action, um, but also voting can have anonymity because that's important. Um, And, you know, we're essentially Western democratic ideal people. So we would argue that um, democracy is really crucial for the success of a system. But I think it's also really crucial for resilience. Now, the reality is, is that we're seeing authoritarian structures emerge that in the internet are centralized and top down. And there are some indications that that's initially successful, but I don't think that that's good for us as people. And it certainly um, is dangerous, I think, as depending on who the top-down authority is. And so for this reason, there are some really massively, massively important decisions that we have to make as societies now about how we're building digital governance. And there are a few models that are emerging Um, one of them is authoritarian and extremely scary. The other one is federated, um, nodal, which is sort of where we're at. Um, there's also the idea that um, it could be bureaucratic, like the kind of European model is somewhat based on this idea of regulation telling people how and, and what they can do. So, you know, my concern is that all of this is moving very quickly into the world of AI. And we're moving towards a world where massive AI systems are going to move horizontally across industries. And as they do that, that's going to create only a couple of competing systems. One would be like a monetary system where you have monetary AI, which is focused on essentially maximizing profit. The other is authoritarian AI, which is really you could say based on loyalty. So how loyal are you to this AI slash party? Uh, there's evidence of a religious AI movement moving towards um, especially Islam, where you'd have joint, you know, kind of responsibility towards your religious affiliation. 
And then the fourth model, which hasn't really successfully emerged, is the individual sovereignty model where you have individual data ownership that can then be leveraged in different ways, used by the owner of that data, and then collected up through Holonix into distributed governance. I mean, I can tell you which of those four I would prefer. <laughs> so basically like owning your, your algorithms, right? Yeah. I mean, this is why we're so big on the own your data movement and we provide data ownership within our system. And we're working on distributed data hosting, which will come sometime this year to allow people to break apart and be able to host their own data or, you know, enable us or another party to become a, a trusted host. But it's a very different relationship than saying, hey, we're going to scrape all your data and own all your data and sell all your data. And then you'll get a free service on the other side. They're, they're like completely, completely different economic uh, models and economic systems. So, you know, you mentioned you were in, in Brazil with this um, tribe the, you have on your wrist, I assume from there. Oh, yeah, this is from the tribe. Yeah, yeah. Like it's, it's just a bracelet, but, you know, they make some beautiful work. So how 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 did the governance, you know, in a, in a thousand, in a in such a like ancestral community uh, influence what, what you're doing right now with Emerald City and, and, and from the models you just described, which one would you uh, say they are, they kind of fit more into? Well, I mean, governance in, a, in an indigenous tribe, and what's interesting is that governance in indigenous tribes could be comparable across many different tribes, not just the Amazon, but First Nation peoples in North America, Aboriginals, even Central Asian or, or Asian populations, Pacific populations, um, they actually operate on a different model of consensus. And, you know, in the blockchain world, we talk a lot about consensus. And this is what sort of drove me towards this model is like looking at Colony, which is a great um, effort. You know, Tony Lane Casterly, who, you know, so sadly just passed away, um, was at the forefront of the the virtual nation movement along with us, but with a project called BitNation that looked at consensus protocols. And so for all of us who are building blockchain-based uh, technology systems, the idea of consensus is one of the major issues that people have to contend with as they build their systems. So do I want 50%, 51%, do I want 100% or want 70% consensus before I make a decision? And under what circumstances is consensus considered valid, like proof of stake, proof of work, proof of, you know, whatever. And so um, this is really, really a fundamental issue around the very core of blockchain uh, society or blockchain, you know, service development. And because of that, I started looking at various models of consensus and, you know, American democracy is one example, Chinese Authoritarianism is another example, and indigenous tribes are another example. And so I started spending time with tribes and looking at how various tribes achieve consensus. Now, in especially Native American peoples, but also you could say in Amazonian peoples, um, one of the reasons that they got wiped out from colonization was that consensus generally involved a higher percentage of agreement among the members of the community. So in some cases, it even approached 100% consensus. So the tribe would not make a decision until everyone agreed, right? But that also meant that you ended up with very slow decision-making. Wow. And the result of that slow decision-making was genocide. So the question becomes, how do you get to full consensus in a rapid way, right? And technology, theoretically, can enable that, but... Figuring out how you get to better consensus mechanisms was, you know, part of my, my thinking. And I can tell you, my experience working and, and spending time with indigenous tribes recently has been that we as a society, quote unquote, modern society, are completely um, missing out on so much knowledge and so much intelligence that we could be learning from indigenous peoples. Like, I think... Number one, indigenous peoples around the world need to unite. And, and there are evidence and efforts happening in that way. But number two, 
we need to look at indigenous peoples as really guardians of a lot of sacred knowledge, which we've lost, but also sacred governance, um, methods and models that would actually help us to get to harmony with nature and sustainability with nature while maintaining a civilly progressive society. I mean, you know, it's a hard sell for your average, you know, I think politician, but we really should be looking at indigenous governance models and looking at how we can digitize or update them and make them relevant for something like blockchain. That's, I think, going to be the magic solution for getting to sustainability, getting to um, engagement, you know, taking care of people in a, in a better way. And, you know, like moving past the models that served us in the 20th century. Oh yeah, archaic stuff like the electoral colleges and stuff like that that, that happened in the United States. That's like, it's vestigial uh, mechanisms that are not relevant for that. Well, I don't know. I don't know if I agree with that because you got to understand like the electoral college, I spent an amazing amount of time with a constitutional scholar who was actually Reagan's electoral advisor. And he basically ran the electoral uh, project for, for Reagan. And so in part of my research about governance, one of the things we looked at a lot was the electoral college in the United States. And so there is a reason for the electoral college. It may be like unbalanced and it may be a bit shitty in some ways, but you got to understand the electoral college exists to prevent the tyranny of the majority. So there's this concept in governance of the tyranny of the majority. Because you'd say like, hey, you know, if 51% of the people voted for, you know, Clinton and 49% voted for Trump, then Clinton should be president, right? And to some extent you would agree. But here's the, here's the situation with that. When you end up in that situation, 49% of the people are really unhappy. They, they haven't co-opted. They haven't agreed. They haven't consensused into that system. It's like a very basic winner-loser outcome. And it's actually not very productive. And this is why a lot of governments um, fail, especially when you get coalition governments. So one of the really interesting things about the Democratic and the Republican Party is that what they're, we don't really notice this, but you actually have lots of different like constituent groups on either side. And they basically, like a Harry Potter hat, they self-support into like Slytherin or you know, Hufflepuff. And the way they self-sort is like on the way up, they pick the values that are more important or less important to them, right? So some people end up in Slytherin and they end up with other people around them who also sorted into Slytherin. And then you have other people who sorted into Hufflepuff and they have tend to have similar values according to the people that are around them. And so what happens is there's this like distributed decentralized sorting that happens all the way to get to a yes, no decision, red or blue, Republican or Democrat. It's actually a pretty good system. What happens in coalition democracies where you have like eight different parties is that no sorting happens and there, there has to be a final sorting that happens before you get to like a governance decision about do we allow, you know, abortion or do we allow um, enable gun control? And so what's happening is that you're, you're doing most of the sorting before you get to the final decision. In coalition democracies, you end up with like seven people fighting it out in parliament, trying to get to that final decision, which actually is one step removed from liquid governance or liquid democratic voting. So you could argue that that's one of the reasons why the US system has maintained itself for 250 years or however many years it is. And Conversely, the electoral college system is protecting the tyranny of majority rule because it provides a, a secondary mechanism, which is a, a counter check on that tyranny of the majority. And the tyranny of the majority is a very dangerous thing. Like you end up with minorities who opt out because they can just never win. You know, if you're always in that 30% margin of people, after some period of not being heard and being overrun by the majority, you're just like, fuck it, you know? I'll revolt. Right. And, and I don't know, it makes sense. I, I, I understand. Because also, what, what is the objective of governance, right? In this case, part of the objective of governance is keeping the union together, the union of states. And the governance system is designed around, you know, maintaining that 
that union and not letting some states just split off. This prevents states from wanting to split off at a certain level. Yeah, it does. I mean, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a bargain, right? And you know, so I mean, could the electoral college potentially be better? Yes, but you know, I I mean, I think a lot of people are skeptical about the electoral college to some extent, but there are really good reasons why that kind of a check and balance on tyranny rule is super important and you could argue is one of the fundamental success points of of why the US has been so successful. Now, you know, from a governance standpoint with Propel, um you know, there are so many issues around governance. Um like how do you get to effective governance? How do you get to good governance? How do you export governance? How do you digitize governance so that it can be shareable so you can get the better best practices and better outcomes? Um So we're really early in that in that method, but one of the really interesting things is that for us all the components of governance, we call these things specs. They're 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 bits of data that um you know whether it's a vote or a policy or a plank or a principle, um these are all what we call specs. And fundamentally what we're doing is we're feeding every spec to our AI so that over time the AI will learn better governance. and we'll be able to suggest governance back to the community um based on all the data related to governance that is consumed and then it will also be able to export governance suggestions to other jurisdictions outside of hub culture so for instance if you have really good road policy in Nebraska and you want to like export that road policy to the Philippines you would potentially be able to export that data get feedback on it and be like you know what this didn't work in the Philippines because we have torrential rains and so therefore we need a different road policy you'd be able to you know in the meta level build this kind of situa- situational awareness for governance for the ai to be able to make better overall decisions now that's like a 20 year project wow <laughs> have you i i, I was wondering because you met, you know you we were talking about the indigenous um governance systems and and it came to mind like the Swiss are kind of like that they do have direct governance um they I, and, and you know since you've been in Davos I don't know if you studied their system and and you have any thoughts on on their system well I'm not super aware but I do know that it's like a cantonal system so there are cantons in um Switzerland that are highly devolved so a little bit like the states right in the United States where you, and you know the the battle in the US is always between federalism and statism right you know the democrats tend to be federalist and the republicans tend to be statist or you know to some extent individually devolved and then you have libertarians um who think that there shouldn't be anything um so in the swiss system you know it's pretty heavily devolved and a decision doesn't go much past the canton unless it's a pretty you know extreme circumstance but even then things like monetary policy are very much done at the federalist level within Switzerland. You don't really see cantonal um currencies or or things like that, but you do see a lot of cantonal decisions. But if you spend time in Switzerland, you'll see that um there's still a lot of like, you know, what you could call pan-Swiss um infrastructure, you know, roads and bridges and incomes and, you know, free flow of trade between these things. So again, it does become a, a like this idea of holonic systems there are some things that are better federalized there are other things that are better like regionalized or cantonalized or you know done at the state level there are things better done at the community level there are things better done at the individual level right and that's like the great um question of our society you know that's the big debate you know are women's reproductive rights at the personal level or at the state level or at the federal level right who pays for that like if there's public funds going towards healthcare then does the public have a say about a person's reproductive rights you know this is the fundamental debate but what's interesting is that we've never had a way before to digitize that debate and vote in real time on that debate to kind of create a a, a health check or a temperature check on how people feel and certainly government and existing governments definitely do not want to enable that or allow that because you know it has very profound implications for many things um 
you know, particularly related to lobbying and money and existing power structures. So the one place where we can start to really experiment with these new governance structures is in the idea of a virtual state, in virtual communities where governance becomes more and more important and more and more, you know, valued. But it'll be an experiment. Uh, you know, different people will have different methods. I, I think that's that's one of the ways that we're evolving, right? That we will, we're creating these spaces to experiment, experiment more, to learn from experience, and that's the important part. And I think that's one of the main things that sciences teaches that you you gotta do something to create something and, and learn something, right? It's not just gonna happen suddenly. And 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 that movement is is what makes it so interesting and. And I think that what you're doing with Emerald City is, one, is, a, is an amazing thing because you're creating exactly one of those spaces. Um, so how do, well, it's how really do you cool. see it? Like we're launching, um, not yet. It, it, I mean, it is technically available, but it's not easily viewed. But every property already has governance attached. So if you launch your own property in Emerald City, you can set your own rules. You can invite a community around that and they can vote on that and they can proxy their vote or, you know, give it to somebody else. And you can set your own, you know, governance fiefdom on your property. And that will be expressed in virtual reality. So, you know, when you when I go to your property, you might have totally different rules than I do, right? But that's okay. You know, it's your property, you own it. Wow, this is awesome. <laughs> and how can, how do people join? How can people you know, get involved? Well, um, the first thing is just go to hubculture.city and you can become a citizen. And once you're a citizen, you can launch your own property for free and then access all those tools that we've been talking about. Video conferencing, end-to-end SHA-256 encrypted video. Um, over the next uh, coming weeks, we're going to be adding social integrations and Venn payments so that you could pay other people in video conference and and generate bonds to build your property. And um, those individual bonds would allow other people to invest in your property and help you build it. And then we're building careers so that we already have like 15 different types of career where if you need to earn money or you're looking for ways to earn money, you can come in, upgrade your status into a, a career in Emerald City and then generate value for the rest of the community. And That includes, you know, developers and designers who want to generate um, 3D environments or 3D files that can be shared onto other people's properties so that you could build, you know, your own virtual reality property or um, services like video editors or graphic designers or yoga instructors or chefs who want to offer services to people in the community, either from their property or by banding together in in Um, public properties and you know we're just going to see where it goes like let people build the city I always say there's plenty of work to do not enough jobs <laughs> awesome awesome and, and who's how are you going are, are you approaching the whole user experience part because I mean that's as you mentioned before also it's very important for mass adoption really uh, <laughs> you know the use of passwords and, and, and all that like is it Right well, now, I understand it's with your hub ID, right? So it's just like my email and my password. Yeah, well, we're very lucky that, you know, we spent five years and many, many dollars building hub ID, which is a digital identity platform that puts ownership into the hands of the user. And it has potentially up to 2,000 identity points that inform the quality of the identity. And so this is really valuable for helping a member within the community or a citizen as we like to think of them to be able to manage their experience within emerald city and you'll see a lot of evolution of that coming up in the in the coming months where depending on your validations you would be able to um, have access to certain things in the city depending on your status within the community and how other people want to invite you. So for instance, if you wanted to give me status on your property or some level of privileges and benefits as your, as the property owner, you can do that. And that would then help to inform my hub ID. Um, again, the data around that is um, private and anonymized and it's done in a very you know particular way so that you looking at my identity wouldn't necessarily know 
that I have those privileges with you um, or with someone else. But the, the data is managed in a way that that's automatic. And I'm excited about what that means for people um, to be able to manage their experience and to build trust with other um, people. So you get to, you know, you know, I, I, I'm, I believe in personas and anonymity to some extent, but I also think that with all of our rights come responsibilities and we have a responsibility to be, you know, good citizens, um, especially to people, not only that we know, but also to people that we don't necessarily know. And so we hope that the, the structure around uh, identity within Hub ID strikes a balance between privacy and the ability to execute a persona, as well as authenticity, which then comes with enhanced privileges. Um, and so you should be able to gain more privileges, um, the better, more trusted person you are. And you should also be able to have, you know, certain levels of activity that you can perform um, with privacy cloaks um, if you want to. Awesome, awesome. I, I think, you know, it's been a really interesting conversation. We've, we've gone uh, deep into, into some subjects and, and it's really interesting. Um, so you mentioned the website. Um, when or how, you already mentioned how how can we get you know to to Emerald City again? Just yeah, and, and well, how can again, we just, just go to hubculture.city or just go to Google and type hubculture Emerald City. It'll take you straight there. Um, the virtual reality uh, two of the properties already exist inside of Steam, so you can go and visit a virtual reality property for Hub already. But the new version of Emerald City virtual reality will be coming in May. And again, it'll be based off the web. So you just have to go to that link and log in, and then the experience will take you um, through, you know, either public conferencing or public broadcast uh, for things that are happening in Emerald City Plaza, which are community events, or you can go to any number of private properties and check those out. You can launch your own property. And then over time, you know, throughout the summer, you're gonna start to see the, the first virtual environments launching, where if you're on a headset, like Oculus or HTC Vive, um, you'll be able to put that on, navigate to Emerald City, and and then get an experience that's um, you know dependent on the property that you go to. So again, you know it's being built in real time. So you know we expect changes every week. Nice, nice. And and tell us a little bit about the last event you just had. Like uh, you know you had 200 people in in a, in a chat room discussing yeah. a very interesting topic. Well, we, I mean, we, yeah, we just finished that a few, a few minutes ago, but it was a really a, an in-depth look with some of the leaders from the fashion world um, talking about the changes that COVID and uh, coronavirus are pushing into the fashion world and what's needed for uh, a, a person or a brand to be successful in that world. And I mean, we had almost, well, I think over 200 people come, which was great. Um, especially considering the fact that the invite was just sent out in 15 or 20 minutes beforehand and all these people arrived. So wow. to be honest, the challenge of managing that many people in an interactive environment um, shows us that we have a lot more work to do in Emerald City. But I think that every day that we're operating and learning, we're gaining more experience on making the experience uh, reliable and stable for our citizens. So, you know, any feedback is always appreciated. I think there's a huge change happening. You know, we're seeing more change right now than we've seen in a long time. And, you know, we, we, we need to work together and collaborate and, you know, have time for each other as much as we can, but also, you know, try to help each other be able to get to the next level with whatever we're trying to do. You know, if, if we are seeing a 30% drop in economic activity or more, depending on the industry that you're in, we're gonna have to find really radical new ways to be able to take care of each other. And hopefully that can be done in a way that is ground up versus top down, in my view. Awesome, 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 really. I, I, it's, so, it's so interesting. I, I have a lot of questions still, but um, you know, time's running. We had a great conversation. Uh, if, if you want to do some closing words, um, please. 
Well, I mean, thank you. Like, we always appreciate the opportunity to connect and to talk with people. If you want to learn more about Emerald City or hub culture generally, um, just visit hubculture.com to get an identity and use the social network or hubculture.city to dive into this particular territory as a, a, a virtual part of our virtual state. Thank you. Thank you. Rafa, unas últimas palabras. Well, thank you, Stan. It was a great conversation. Lo distinto te ha encontrado. Esto es Infinita Podcast. Encuentra nuevos episodios cada semana. Suscríbete. 